This is the EWN Podcast Network. Join us today on From Disaster to Dream Home, as our guest, Francisco Alberto Monday, shares insights about the design trends and timeless choices available to choose from in our exterior building materials, windows and doors, and about the process of working with your designer and consultants. Welcome to From Disaster to Dream Home, the podcast that takes you inside the home building and rebuilding process. When interior designer Jana Rosenblatt had an 80-foot tree fall on her house, she saw the opportunity to create the customized home of her dreams. From Disaster to Dream Home provides you with the information and resources Jana wished she had during her rebuilding process. Now she's sharing with you the expertise of leading architects and home builders and the newest products and materials on the market. Here's your host, Jana Rosenblatt. Welcome back, home builders and remodelers, to another episode of From Disaster to Dream Home, the podcast that will take you through the process of building or rebuilding a new home from the ground up in 52 episodes. If you are rebuilding after the loss of your home or rebuilding a new home from the ground up, each episode of From Disaster to Dream Home will help you know what you and your design team will need to do to make the construction process fluid so your dream home can rise from the ashes. We are speaking with our guest, Francisco Alberto Monde, about the trends he is seeing in building materials in the Conejo Valley of Southern California, where there are major fire threats almost every year. Most recently, many of the area's homes were severely affected by the Woolsey fires in 2018. Francisco is the Director of Sales and a design consultant at Conejo Hardwoods, one of the leading material suppliers in California featuring hardwood flooring, moldings, doors, windows, and exterior decking. Hi, Francisco. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I have so many episodes of topics that I want to speak with you on based on your 22 years of experience in design, construction, and recent experience with your clients rebuilding their homes. How soon after the Woolsey fire did people begin to come in to the showroom with their plans to rebuild? Hey, Janet, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank um, you. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, to be brief, I would say it's, it was as quickly as two weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, some people I think had that on top of mind or it was a way to distract themselves. And we saw people yeah. come in as late as, believe it or not, a year, people dealing with the stress and the chaos and just trying to get their bearings. Yeah, I think that there are some people in Malibu that still are in the in the designing phase and it's so many years later. Uh, sure. But it's interesting that what you say about distraction, I'm sure people who could look toward it as a creative opportunity, um, you know, would want to kind of get an idea of what's available. Absolutely. And what has it been like for you to work with people who may have never imagined rebuilding or building a new home from the ground up? You know, that's obviously yourself as a designer as well. It's it's a mixed bag as well. But some people that had some experience um, or interest in design and desire to really, obviously not under those circumstances, but yet had a desire to 
remake their environment, so to speak, remodel or maybe move. Some people saw it as a great opportunity and were very uh, past the, the grief, of course, were quite excited. And then some people that had never maybe had a home built or purchased a home, even if it's obviously not new, it's a, it's a finished product. Some people were terribly overwhelmed. Uh, yeah. As you know, there's potentially over 50 line items to make a decision on. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other issue is that many times the tradespeople involved when you get beyond the selection phase, the scheduling and tradespeople um, were also a second layer of stress and complexity. So some people really saw it as a high stress situation. Yeah, I imagine so. Uh, do you find that you're that one of your primary jobs is educating people? Absolutely. I think that the, you know, it's interesting, the design aspect of it is fundamental in the practice, but you're still dealing with a human being. And it's not a standard situation of, hey, I want to redo my kitchen. Let's just see what it looks like and how much it costs. Now it's having lost your dwelling, your memories, your home, hopefully not any animals or anything of of life. Um, And then it's just getting your bearings back together. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, working with a human being on a psychological level and meeting Mm -hmm. that person sincerely as a person and then delicately seeing how ready they are to jump in the water. Yeah, I know. I I often say to younger uh, designers coming up through the ranks that uh, in the design programs, there should be a major in design and a minor in psychology because there's an awful (laughs) lot of uh, more than handholding. It's really uh, a trust level and um, your experience is is what's going to help these people get through the process. Well said. So how do you work as a consultant with your clients? Do they come in with the plans of the whole project and you look at it as a whole or are they looking, are they coming in just for exterior surfaces one day and windows a different day and, you know, uh, hardwood flooring the, another day? Well, what, how does that all work? You know, it's, again, it's, it, it, it runs the gamut because certain people come in and they're looking for true directive and consultation, as in, tell me how I get to the top of Mount Everest and what do we do? Uh, then you have people that say, you try to guide them. Well, you try to get, get to know them, where they are, how they want to proceed, how they like to move, how they'd like to decide. But even after consulting to what one individual thinks is the best practicum, sometimes clients being human beings say, listen, thanks for the heads up, but I want to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then, and then if they're dead set on that and there's no room for adjustments, it's an opportunity to say, look, I can work within that structure. But sometimes as a professional, I have to say, I can respect how you want to do it, but I won't be able to guide you well through that process. And sometimes I have to defer and say, look, maybe what you want to do is hire an independent uh, interior designer for a couple hours, get your ideas on paper. Then maybe you want to meet a general contractor. And some people that have taken that directive uh, eloquently come back and find out that, wow, I kind of understand what you were saying. Uh, There's a lot to orchestrate yeah um so and some people some people want to manage the job and they want to sub everybody mm-hmm. some people need a general contractor or an architect in certain situations you have to have an architect um so yeah i, I try to apply the most pragmatic systematic process that has sense behind it 
as to how the construction world works and how you put a home back together. Because uh, there is a sequence once you, you know, when the pen hits the paper and people are starting to move materials, there's a process. Um, but sometimes, you know, I will pull a client back if they don't have clarity or if they're just confused or not clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And say, look, what's the feel you want? You know, what's the, do you want it to feel casual, buttoned down? Do you want, do you host a lot? Do you have big family dinners? And then you start kind of working on an emotional level that's pragmatic to the outcome and have them jump into small pockets where they can expound on their desires. And then when they feel heard and they get clarity, you can start formulating a a program to put everything back. So do you find that you're able to work with some clients sort of from beginning to end? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Whether they want to from the beginning or they heed the counsel. Absolutely. And in that situation, back to your initial question, if they come in with plans and I see the layout, it gives me an idea. Probably an architect has been involved, obviously, mm-hmm. whether pre or post. Um, I get a little deeper into their lifestyle, interest, desires, and um, things they're a little sensitive to that may have been overlooked in the plan build and that you can kind of manipulate. Like we were talking prior to this meeting you know, blinds are different than curtains. Uh-huh, right, right. You know, uh, one is hard, one is soft. Uh, curtains get, you know, they can get dirty and you have to dry clean them versus blinds. You have to just wipe them down. The aesthetics are very different. Um, so, yeah. So that's great. It sounds like, you know, there are people who certainly seek out interior design help, which can lead them through the process. And then there are some that either don't know about the resource of an interior designer or, um, or for some reason have it labeled as a beyond reach, unaffordable or, you know, whatever hesitation. And it sounds like you're able to kind of take them through some of that process. You're not going to just sell them um, what the latest thing on the rack is. You're trying to help them discover what's best for their needs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, I, I hear that the point you're, that you're sharing and I think I share that philosophy with you is my, my, my ethos is consulting versus selling because a consultation is to understand a client's needs, desires, budget. And then with my education and understanding and sensibility and within understanding them, introduce them to the best product scenarios and applications and design that would suit. So, yeah, I think that you need to make sure that as a guide, if you will, or as a consultant, you're taking people to the right places. And when you consult, people buy. When you sell, it's more of a push. And I'm not a big fan of pushing because whether it's a marriage, a friendship, a business, when you push hard, there's always a pushback because you weren't listening to the Mm -hmm. need. Well, and of course, these are some of the most long lasting decisions anyone is going to make in their lifetime. You know, uh, hopefully they're, you're either rebuilding to be able to put it on the market, which is rare. I found in the area, um, especially in your area, people want to live there and stay there and they're rebuilding their family homes. Very, Yeah, very much. Um, yeah. When you look at Malibu, I feel like there's a lot of inherited land or property yeah, yeah, that came right. through, you know, a few generations. Uh, and most people want to preserve that both because of the, you know, the tax structure could be incredible, but really it's such a sought after environment. Mm-hmm. And the same applies to Westlake Oak Park. Yeah. Oak Park. Obviously oh, Hidden beautiful. Hills, Calabasas. Um, and I think just quickly touching on the fact that we live in a very 
sought after part of the country to reside in. And sometimes when you move, there's not a lot available to recapture. This mm-hmm. is another that's component right. I, I see. Yeah, that's all correct. We recently completed two new homes rebuilding after the Woolsey fire in your area. One is a modern traditional with a stucco exterior, large open windows and nine to 12 foot ceiling heights. The client selected vinyl casement windows and um, an iron and glass decorative front door. The other one is a modern craftsman. The exterior was composite siding and a combination with natural stone, a lot of natural stone, sliding vinyl windows that are full panes of glass without the mullions that might usually um, be seen on a craftsman style exterior. But it does have a custom craftsman style, you know, wood front door. As a design consultant, I'm sure you're noticing a variety of of design styles. Are you seeing any specific trends in your area? Um, yes, you know, I, I think that one of the things that's actually leading the, the trends is what the original architecture allows, not to say that everybody's going to pay homage to the undertones of these homes. Uh, but I think what I've seen above all is people trying to apply as many modern elements as possible, uh-huh. um, which touches on the, the key details you were just mentioning. Um, and even though sometimes it's not exactly fitting to the, the epoch of the architecture, so to speak, I think creatively people are finding ways to bring in, like you're saying, maybe sometimes raising the roof, you know, as, as far as much as possible to create space, creating these large, almost industrial window panes, mm-hmm. with minimal framing um, to kind of create uh, the sense that the outdoor is indoors and the indoors is outdoors. Also, if you look at just on a slightly different topic, how people are opening up spaces inside where now the kitchen is a part of the, the living space where yeah. traditionally, mm-hmm. you know, you had traditionally speaking, you had service and help cooking in the kitchen, which was a service area. Right. Right. You would never hang out in a kitchen. Um, so that, so opening up spaces into basically, you know, homes that can look like a loft uh-huh. for this very communal living style, like you said, the larger windows, but I think above all, also people end up, um, people after 20 years, they just need something novel to kind of brighten their spirit. And sometimes you have to go to the other end of the spectrum, um, to get a sense that's, that you're doing something fresh and new. Yeah, you're describing exactly what I'm seeing, which is why I think I was trying to figure this out this morning. I've been adding the word modern to other words almost entirely for the last couple of years with my projects. It's a modern traditional. It's a modern craftsman. And because they want a contemporary interior open floor plan, um, much more that I think the exciting thing about working with these people at this stage, most of them have lived in their houses for 20 more or more years and raised their families. And this is their opportunity to be able to now share a big space with their family and, you know, open up the flow of the houses, which I think is a really great trend. Um, in terms of the exterior houses, are you seeing more um, contemporary or uh, is there still a certain amount of Mediterranean and Hacienda, those kind of California looks? Well, you know, I think one opportunity that I've identified with a lot of my client base and visually just as 
as you and your team are, you know, when you're in the design world, it's almost like a foodie. You're always eating design and you're consuming yes, it. That's right. I have identified, seen, and utilized the opportunity. So for instance, if you look at a lot of the homes in Ventura County and parts of LA County, um, if you take a home that is a little bit confused and could be a hacienda home, but was given the kind of 1980s rough stucco kind of troweling, if you smooth coat that house, you can really, this is an interesting point, like you can modernize a home in a traditional style immediately. So a lot of the 1970s and 80s tract homes that got that kind of, in my opinion, unattractive stucco, which is very economical, if you were to remove that and smooth coat it and then go with a darker trim, like a dark espresso, you know, you look at, it's interesting, the Spaniards and the Mexicans had that Hacienda Santa Barbara style that was really yeah. a modernized Mexican kind of Spanish flair. And it also touches on, some people took that concept and went with black trim, modern front doors, smooth coat. So all of a sudden you can, with good taste, modernize this core piece of architecture uh, to feel very fresh and traditional all at once. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And I think lastly, what I'll say is one of the, the lowest hanging fruit that I find is a lot of tract homes were built with efficiencies of scale in mind. So that really unattractive stucco was the fastest, quickest way you can put that on the sheath or the outside of a home without having to get a perfectly smooth finish, which is a right. lot more laborious. And by removing that, which has a cost and going smooth, you can, you can almost take a home in Thousand Oaks and make it look like it belongs in Montecito where homes were built with a different level of attention. So um, I would say, and kind of hearkening back to your point, yeah, I think uh, changing the applique outside is a huge opportunity by going smooth coat. And then some people are not doing that, but they want to use, like you said, composite or natural wood siding. If you look at Nobu in Malibu, which is a kind of a landmark piece of architecture, they did what's called, they, they wood clad the outside. So siding is one way to cover the outside. And you can also clad something with a more Bauhaus, German, modern feel. And if you could, like, you'll see that in, in Thousand Oaks, like the Eichler community, very, very strong mid-century modern community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even the mid-century 1960 build homes in Thousand Oaks and like the Shadow Oaks community. A lot of people have been wood cladding the outside of the home. They already have the flat roof. And all of a sudden it feels like a really chic home in Palm Springs. So, so that, you're giving me a really good um, outline of some things I want to get into more specifically. So let me start with this question. Um, are the clients who are rebuilding after the fire specifically seeking specific fire retardant methods, building methods and materials? Yeah, you know, I've seen both. It's interesting. So certain people are only doing that to the extent that it's mandated by the permitting. Uh, uh, certain, yeah. certain, certain people have have a bit of a, of a rebellious spirit, which I understand, which is, you know what, I'm so frustrated this happened or upset. I'm just trying to see how I can get through the permitting process, but I want a wood deck again, let's say. Uh -huh. And there are limitations per Cal Fire in Malibu as far as what rating you need. And that's something for a different uh, topic, obviously, in conversation. But other people are, to your point, being more specific about what exactly can I do to safeguard my home after I build it 
to kind of offset. Remember, everything will burn to the ground, even a skyscraper made of steel. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, yeah, I, I do see a large amount of people being uh, very inquisitive with what's out there that fits my style, that is has a higher level of fire retardance, or some people that were really shocked by this event, which was very detrimental, come in and say, look, I want to start my design with what's actually going to hold up the best. Right. Yeah. And I wonder about my- that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're starting that. Re- some people are starting that research as the root of their design process. Correct. Yeah, which I I think there's a certain wisdom in that. Um, and let me just uh, say that the concept of fire retardant, uh, you know, as you say, everything burns, but the idea is to slow the process so that lives are saved. And yes. there are pros and cons of different materials and and. Um, Things that we'll get into, I know you, um, especially at Conejo Hardwood, are working with natural materials. And and so even within that world, there are materials that are going to be more combustible and less combustible. And um, are people who are coming to Conejo Hardwood looking for those options specifically? Yes, to your point, exactly. Um, people that are building homes with great consideration on Element authenticity, right? So wood is wood, stone is stone. Composites are great. I mean, Coronado Stone makes these wonderful composite stack stone facade elements that a lot of commercial spaces use, but it doesn't have the, it doesn't have the wealth and richness of travert- tumble travertine. It just doesn't. So yes, certain people will come in and say, look, I want to do a wooden deck again. What has the, what has the greatest level of fire retardants, which is generally a class A fire rating, Mm -hmm. and they will look at said materials, IPE from Brazil being one. Um, So yes, certain people are doing porcelain uh, wood look tile in in the backyard saying, you know what, I'm not even going to um, play around with that. Now that's a little different than your question, but sometimes when they come in, sometimes people's assumption is that a, for instance, I'm not going to get into the details. I'm not a scientist, but (laughs) If they say, I want something with a class A fire rating because it's permitted in certain parts under certain circumstances in Malibu. And then when you really tell the truth and consult and tell them, well, it's still going to burn, they say, oh, no, that's not going to work for me. What doesn't burn? And if you talk about what takes the longest to burn, it would be something like steel or porcelain. And then even though we don't sell those porcelain materials, I would tell them the benefits of porcelain, some of the downfalls. It can crack outside if you have a a deck that has too much flex, but it would take the longest to incinerate. And, you know, if you have a deck that doesn't catch on fire as quickly, it would take longer for your home to actually catch on. And that would, to your point, give people time to evacuate the home and or even allow the the firemen to get in and preserve most of the structure. That's right. Yeah. The time uh, you want to buy time for both um, survival and protective uh, protection. Um, So then I know that there are specific uh, qualities of windows that are going to make them um, more and less of a great choice in an area that is prone to fire. Are there specific fire resistant qualities to the glass and windows? And um, let's talk a little bit about what people are asking for in, in, in their window design. Well, 
To be really honest, to my knowledge, I don't believe that any type of glass is more or less. Uh, what I do know to be a fact is that if you look at, for instance, a company called Western Window Systems, they do all aluminum uh, structure in the framing. So obviously, aluminum, aluminum can actually melt at a relatively low level, but it does not incinerate at the rate that wood does. Uh, the other component would be a vinyl structured window, and vinyl is going to melt and, and incinerate one of the two much quicker um, than aluminum for sure. And I would probably say that it would even take longer to catch on fire than wood. Now, sometimes it's interesting and it's a long conversation for a different episode, but you can have an aluminum, excuse me, a wood clad aluminum frame. So on the inside oh, of the home, yeah. certain people, yeah. So if on the outside of the house you want, goes back to the design conversation, some people want a modern look outside. So with an aluminum frame, that's either mill aluminum or black, which is the most common, or maybe that dark espresso color. And then inside you can clad the window. Basically you put a thin piece of authentic natural wood. So you can have a warmer, more traditional feel inside. Cause you know, the aluminum, Framing is re it's really a commercial product. Right. And when mm -hmm. you have an aluminum frame, if you have aluminum mill color, it looks like a 1960s home. And if you have black, it can look like a retail space. But if you have the right environment, um, it looks beautiful. So I am also seeing, uh, even though I think that there are better choices in terms of uh, fire issues, that people are still choosing a lot of vinyl windows, which is probably the first uh, thing to melt and allow, you know, flames to enter into the house itself. Um, are, are you seeing people shying away from the vinyl or because of the cost factors um, and maybe the look, maybe not? Um, are people still going with that choice? What are you seeing in your, in the store? Well, I, I think, I think the third point in that, in that expression captured the truth in my opinion, that is, Vinyl is about economies of scale. So, and that's a fact, like nobody comes in with the means to build a home well. And, I, and listen, I'm not, I'm not sitting on a billion dollars. So I'm a person striving to do better in my life financially, but vinyl is only sought after when you're looking for the best price, period. There's no benefit to vinyl aesthetically, structurally, um, that would supersede an aluminum frame. Mm -hmm. So those are the two components. Now, wood is different because you know this very well. An all wood window is bound to have expansion, contraction, binding. I don't care who makes it. Mm -hmm. Just like an all wood door is what a purist would use, but it swells in the winter if it's, if it's humid. It dries in the summer. It will kind of expand and contract. The seams will end up failing over time. So I find that vinyl has come a long way. Now they have vinyl that's pigmented, not painted, uh -huh. black, dark brown, ivory, excuse me, almond, white. Um, and, and don't misunderstand me. Vinyl can look really good. Um, one thing I would caution people, though, is that sometimes vinyl manufacturers will offer to paint it. So if you get a, a white vinyl base that's, that's painted black, even at the factory mm -hmm. level, they scratch, yeah. they fail, and they fade. So that's something that has no easy resolve. Right. Right. You know, I agree. I, I dissuade people from that choice as well. But it's hard to dissuade anyone from 
a lot of the vinyl options because there are so many options uh, to choose from. And, and that brings up, you know, we've touched on a little bit. Where in the process is the budget conversation? Do you like to have an idea when um, the client comes in with their plans and are at the beginning of the process, kind of where they're situated? Or do you let the designs uh, develop a little bit before you then, you know, start to talk about the hard and fast pricing? That's, that's an excellent question, which always dictates how you commence in this, in this process that can take months, yeah. not a year. So here's what I like to do personally. So first of all, your the reception of a client is very telling. So if people come in and say, look, I've been shopping, I've been, I've been going to different stores, I've been researching, um, I know about the differences in price and materials, or if family, husband, wife, individual come in and they say, um, you know, we have a really, really hard and fast budget we have to work within. Um, then we could start dissecting numbers up front. And I've got a pretty good sense of, and of the scope of work they're going to be looking at. And I, I like to do what's called information chunking. So, so for instance, if somebody has a hard budget, I start information chunking across the board, which means, okay, generally, because you can get into the minutia. So generally speaking, an aluminum sliding window that's three feet by eight feet, two units with this type of glass, let's just get a chunk number there. Let's chunk everything out and get a rough number. Because sometimes people come in and say, this is my budget. For instance, people will come in sometimes and say, and then I hope I'm not getting off topic. They'll come in and say, I have a 5,000 square foot home uh-huh. and, my, and my budget for flooring is $2 a foot. And I go, okay, well, let's sit down and understand this a little better. $2 a foot is not even carpet. So we need to re- really reconsider the allocation of budget. And it's of no importance to me necessarily. I just have to drive this with you with more clarity. So getting back to your point, I like to do it one of two ways. If people come in and they don't want to start choosing anything until they get every price in their mind, I feel that a lot of people can't look at anything. So what I'll do is this. I'll say, look, let's walk the showroom and have a consultation and let me understand what you desire. Mm-hmm. And then let me start picking through the endless index of goods in the world mm-hmm. and help you kind of pinpoint, like if somebody tells me, I have to have the most incredible dining set that could cost you $50,000. Right. But you're not as worried about the quality of the appliances. Yeah, or the floor you're going to put the dining set on. That's right. So so I feel like for me, the most effective process is understanding their lifestyle and their aesthetic sensibility and their values. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of digress and start piecing out Okay, well, if you want a, a French oven, it could cost you 35 grand. But if you want something that looks really modern, like maybe uh, a wolf, it's a little more industrious, not as elegant, that can cost you 12,000. Can you make that, that concession? And then we start building kind of a, a visual mm-hmm. landscape. So I think both approaches works. I think to answer your question, I need to understand the client's sensibility and mm-hmm. if they can get creative before they get financial. So then along also on the budget aspect, where do you think, where do you see the budgets coming from? Have they been um, estimated by the, uh, the construction company that's doing the job? And do you find any of those recommendations are ever realistic? 
Yes and no, because if they have like a total budgetary number that's not broken down yeah, by, by category, that's what I'm saying. A client will come in and say really adamantly, they've done all their homework supposedly with the wrong roadmap. And, and there's an example again, a 5,000 square foot home with a $2 floor, it doesn't resonate. You can't put a, a floor that belongs in pick and save or like a mini mart and a $4 million home because, and it's not about what I want to sell. It's you can't, you can't sell that home down the road. It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. So uh, my answer is the budgets built by the construction companies or the builder are usually on the tighter side because clients tastes are usually superseding that. I find that I think that it's really necessary for the builder to come up with some kind of framework of the budget. I do wish that they that there were standards regionally where they were updated to a certain degree, you know, the systems that they're using, like the cost of tile isn't really can you get tile for $5 a square foot? Yes, you can. Is it look like what you want to in that new 5,000 square foot house? It probably doesn't. But that's another point, actually, that I find the people who are rebuilding uh, from the from the ground up, they've lost everything, are now trying to get as much house on the prop on the property as possible. So even if they lost a 3,500 square foot house, they're now going to try to build a 5,000 square foot house because they can and not realize that that's a lot more ground to cover. And if they renovated um, a few years back and put in new, you know, new flooring material, they've now doubled the amount of flooring material you need without intellectualizing how much more that's going to cost. Yeah, that's a, that's a, yes, that's a big, and, and you know, with people not having, clarity and redundancy in, in a process like rebuilding, like as a designer, I, I have witnessed a lot of rebuilds and remodels. So I have a really good sense when things are really quickly going to get off the rails, but it's fair to say a consumer that lost their home that wants to take 3,500 to 5,000. Um, when the numbers start coming back in multiples of plus 1500, the budget goes out the window. So yeah, I think that, the, and I think that's where designers can be very instrumental um in consulting if you get a chance at the inception say listen i mean that sounds wonderful but you're, you're going to get more of less quality are you okay with that with how it does or doesn't hold up and how it looks and some people say they don't care and then it starts getting installed and they're like oh my goodness i can't keep this and then you say well there's no turn. You can't turn around now. Mm-hmm. Now, Francisco, that reminds me of a of a factor that's also been happening to me. How well do you find your clients understand the plans that were drawn? And now you're the nuts and bolts guy that has to bring them from this document that they don't really know nece- necessarily know. Many people do, but many people don't. Um, that you're the guy that's going to bring them into reality. Do you find that people understand their plans and know what they're asking for? Um, not very well. Yeah. Because, you know, it's kind of like when you look at a two-dimensional plan, you have no sense of, of spatial understanding, none. And then spatial understanding has to do with flow. And flow has to do with how does it feel when you walk from one room to the other? And what can you see from one room to the other? And then 
transition in materials, transition in wall surfaces, wall colors. You know, what am I going to be looking at when I'm sitting in my living room if I'm looking in that direction? Uh, the allocation of windows, the size of windows. You know, I've met a lot of people that put televisions in spaces with massive windows and you're trying to watch TV and then you got to drop the blinds and now you're in a movie theater and you feel mm-hmm. like it doesn't resonate. What do you do? You do not. Well, you can't watch TV at that time unless you feel like you're in a dark cave, which to some people they like. So I think that the utilization of programs that can do virtual tours mm-hmm. has been one of the most incredible tools where I've watched people uh, have the capacity to say, oh, wow, like, and, and that gives them a greater sense where, of course, like yourself and myself, if you walk through a couple hundred homes in your time, it's like cooking. You can reach for the salt while you're kind of stirring the pot mm-hmm. and know how much to put in while you're looking for the next ingredient. So, no, I, I think that a lot of, you know, the end user requires a lot of consultation, in my opinion, to get a better sense um, if they want to. Now, certain people will just say, look, tell me what you think. Tell me why. And they're trusting. Mm-hmm. And I would say a seasoned person that's considering the client will do a good job for the most part. Um, and sometimes you get very, uh, very confident human beings that are professionals in their own right that are pulling the trigger on things that are not understood. Um, so it's a great question. And I think it's a, it's something that has a huge opportunity for greater clarity. It brings up a lot of examples, but mostly it helps. It, it, it makes me want to do my little commercial about interior designers because the earlier that you have an interior designer helping you to visualize and understand the better off you're going to be. And it pays for itself over and over again, in my opinion. And I think my clients have found that too. I'm going to give you one classic example. Uh, beautiful, the, the beautiful, modern, um, traditional that I spoke about earlier. The, the architect designed a, a vaulted, uh, curved vaulted ceiling when you walk into this beautiful, expansive entry hall. And it was designated as uh, as being um, small bricks or tile. And the first things that this homeowner w- talked to me about was wanting to modernize and contemporize their home. So meanwhile, this is a very Mediterranean, old world kind of surface, which is also incredibly expensive. You have to pay for the material and the labor to install it. And it was not a small space. So I took them down a road toward Venetian plaster, which, yes, is a little labor intensive, but you're not paying additionally for expensive materials. And you're getting a much more um, contemporary and reflective and interesting, you know, look and solution. And I I probably when I first started working with them, I probably saved them about fifty thousand dollars in terms of that kind of look and finish and at the get go. So really, I paid for myself before we even started shopping by helping them understand what they were looking at. And then I think, you know, then I rely on people like you in the stores. I mean, I can't be an an expert in everything. So I my job is to identify the, the concerns and the goals and the wants, like the questions you were telling that, you know, saying that you ask early on in the process. I start with all of that 
And then I bring them to, you know, places like Conejo where, you know, where they're going to get expert opinions on important decisions to make. Yeah, I think that's an, I think that's an excellent point. And irrespective of what outfit or partner you choose to take your clients to, Conejo Hardwoods as a resource, let's say, as, as one example, there's many, you have many resources, you know, that's a really beautiful point because a lot of designers um, have learned with our company. What I was identifying was that a lot of interior designers were coming in and starting to kind of want to be the, the authority on the material product. And I was, I was pulling some of these designers out after the meeting saying, listen, half of what you said doesn't hold any water. So let's do this a little different. You come in and deliver the people. You tell me the directive, and then I can speak specifically to the elements in their application based on where we're driving the project per the client's desire. And it's actually been the most productive and effective way, obviously, because, you know, for, for an interior designer to know everything about everything, it's unrealistic. Yeah. yeah. And what you're supposed to do is rely on the specificity exactly. of focus consultants like us where I know the science, the market, the trends. I mean, you talk about hardwood flooring. I've been to factories. I've been to chemical plants. I, I am an interior designer. So I can really, I can understand it and, and help navigate. And also for, I have a lot of designers that'll come in, deliver the client to me on the first meeting. And then for the consecutive three to four meetings to get refined, they don't need to come back. Why would you need to come back? Let me deliver the notes to you, the updates, mm -hmm. and then you can carry on and do a better job at your uh, core responsibility of being kind of a guide. So mm -hmm. that's right. I think you painted that beautifully. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you know, I, I really look. I really look to my vendors for uh, all of the answers, and I always phrase my questions with, "Please correct me if I'm wrong." Because a lot of times I feel like my job is interpreting sometimes what you're saying to um, to what I know because I've been talking to them. To, I know what they're going to understand. So it's a it's an interesting process, and it's taken us into an another an, an entirely new show direction than I had even intended. But it's <laughs> um, I think it's so important. I really want people to understand the process and how the people around you can work for you to get you your best and most affordable. You know to meet your needs and goals. So now let me just get back to some of the um, building materials, especially on the exterior building materials and, um, and the things that are going into, uh, in, in, into creating the, you know, the look that people want. Are you seeing any specific technological improvements and non-traditional materials for housing uh, siding and um, uh, doors and windows that are coming into the marketplace? What's new? Um, you know, so you got to keep something in mind. So one thing that we talked about quite a bit, Jenna, is that Canal Hardwoods, which, which really focuses on natural materials, um, to be really transparent, the natural materials world uh, doesn't move uh -huh. at, the, at the speed of fashion. Now, one reason for that is that natural materials are more like so just real quick, think about the food industry. So lettuce, tomatoes, and beef are the raw materials for a chef to create the meal. So being a supplier of natural materials and having a philosophy that 
the less you manipulate a material, the more beauty you bring and substance you bring into a space. You know, it's an interesting, it's a, it's actually one of my favorite conversations because um, a lot of times people are looking for the next thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so when you look at the really good design, good design does progress. Like for instance, the title 24 standard for homes now in California, uh, the energy efficiency. So if you look at doors and windows in title 24, a lot of window and door manufacturers had to completely reinvent how they make them. If you're relying on doors and windows for that efficiency and the points you need to get in building a new home. Um, so that's one area in some of the things we deal with that are really driven by technology and mandates for the efficiency standards in homes. Um, you also get more points in a home. For instance, wood is a wonderful insulator. So certain types of wood products in a home can also further insulate and reduce the need, reduce the need for air conditioning or heating, which is another Title 24 uh, standard to keep the home more efficient as a whole. Um, but, you know, so to answer your question more clearly, um, hardwood flooring, as an example, hasn't had many uh, changes because it's more of a traditional product. Decking and cladding, which is wood materials that goes on the outside of wall of homes or walls or the underside of ceilings is basically a piece of wood. Um, we used to be in the tile business and frankly speaking, the porcelain business, which is the hardest, most durable type of tile for the ground. The greatest uh, trend we saw there was the wood plank look where you get a porcelain tiles could be as wide as 10 inches and as long as seven feet, which was Mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah. Um, And I think that, you know, beyond that, honestly, the rest of what we focus on is securing and purchasing the highest quality materials with the highest level of stewardship. So for us, it's interesting for Canal Hardwoods Focus, the technology for us, so to speak, is taking a a greater interest in responsibly sourcing materials Mm -hmm. um, and delivering them for what they are. And high quality natural materials are longer lasting outside, which plays into their longevity. So in some ways, everything old is new again? Honestly, you know, prior to talking to you this morning yeah. and your team, and it's not just to sound poetic, I really believe that when we're done running on the hamster wheel, outside of some of these technological advances, you know, again, if you talk about, but think about it, refrigerators and dishwashers today are a nightmare. I mean, your refrigerator has a malfunction in the in the, in the motherboard or the, the computer, and you're talking about, thousands of dollars yeah. it doesn't make guys yeah, it yeah that's an cold. excellent example <laughs> so yes everything old is new again um and ultimately in my mind has always been the best solution mm-hmm. yeah yeah so in thinking about the most your most recent projects just give me an idea if there's any particular plans that you've seen that you particularly love like a, a house plan someone's come in with any design unique design features or something where you said you know I would love to live in that house um to, I mean to be honest I walked into we have a home builder in Hidden Hills that builds these homes that are 
So first of all, an 18,000 square foot home is just something that I had never witnessed. Uh, <laughs> commonly. Uh-huh. But what really struck me is when I walked into the master bathroom, which was 2,500 square feet. Okay. Which is bigger than my house. Right. Bigger than mine. Yeah. So, but what was interesting is it was enormous, but what the designer and architect did so beautifully is they scaled everything to where you didn't feel that it was overdone. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, Yeah. Now, obviously fixtures like toilets were tucked away because a Mm -hmm. toilet can't be bigger, Mm -hmm. but it felt like a very luxurious spa if you would even say locker room. So there was like a large uh, square seating area. Uh, It was kind of like a lounge. Like when you come out of the Ojai Valley and spa and you have this like tea room. Yeah. So designated areas that induce a feeling. Very much. So, So I think what struck me is the scale, what they utilized that was incredible because of the large surfaces and wall areas were these beautiful, um, butterfly slabs from Italy of quartzite, excuse me, uh, marble, uh, that were incredible. There was, uh, four shower heads and <laughs> it, which was obviously just a, a crazy thing. Uh-huh. Um, and then I think the other thing that has really been striking me that I've always loved is the amount of wood cladding. So, you know, wood cladding, which used to be called wood paneling. Oh, interior. Right, interior. Okay. Wood paneling is something that kind of came to be in more of the high production homes, but wood cladding would be uh, something where you take thin or broad planks and you cover the interior walls of, of homes. And what it adds that's really interesting is it's an element. You know, you're talking about the grain structure of the wood, the character of the grain, mm-hmm. potentially the color of the wood or the tone. It's warm, it's soft, it softens the auditory component, uh, and it creates a great sense of, of dimension because, you know, if, if you don't want a truly stark modern home, you need to bring dimension and texture. And how do you do that? I mean, wallpaper is something that I've only seen resurge in the very, very, very high end. Mm-hmm. But in the 70s and 80s, it had a really strong presence. And it was a way to bring... Um, adornment mm-hmm. detail texture. right exactly which i think is i think wallpaper is underutilized um and i think what i'll what i'll kind of layer this with is i think that we you know one of the biggest trends that i've seen changing is i think that for the last 15 to 20 years uh people were utilizing a very minimal approach to redecorating their homes, which was really because they were wanting to get away from like the French country, the wallpaper. Stripping away. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's going to be interesting in this next phase or epoch and expensive is that when you want to re-adorn a home or if you want to bring more adornment and detail, it's more expensive. Mm-hmm. Wallpaper is expensive. It, oh, it's crazy. It, it can be a hundred times what paint costs. And practically right. it's at least four to five times. Mm-hmm. If you don't do wallpaper well, it, it's awful. Mm-hmm. The lines are off, it bubbles. But what I'm saying is that people, one trend I'm seeing is people are slowly starting to tire of the dry, crisp, minimal look. Right. 
And, you know, minimalism requires a very basic adjustment. You just strip everything away. <laughs> Whether it's good or bad taste, you're just taking everything away. Mm -hmm. But when you're bringing things back in, you need a much more refined eye to decorate. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, if you declutter, you're just taking everything out. But if you want to decorate and be right. a little bit more of a traditionalist, you know, you can be a crazy eclectic person. But if you want to have a sense of refinement, it requires a lot more layering. And I think I'm seeing it Wood flooring colors are returning to a warmer tone slowly. Less gray. Exactly. Less uh -huh. gray. The washed out look is still very rampant, but people uh -huh. are slowly finding the courage to say, hey, for instance, can Warm I things up? Can I do a brown floor again? We have to give them permission. It's like, well, you can do a muted, worn leather look. Yeah, you can do like a flat uh, kind of tan. So yeah, we're we're seeing um, we're seeing a return of that slowly. Yes, that's you are confirming uh, a lot of what I'm seeing around in the marketplace, and of course, it's exciting for me to be able to help people choose what to bring you know back in uh, as they decide what their aesthetics will will look like and what they want to experience. And so in. A kind of final question for now, because we're going to hopefully talk to you in additional episodes. Is there any, uh, are there any additional ideas about the design process that you want to share? Um, you know, I, I think, I think if I'm considering your audience, which is an assumption, I don't know exactly who's out there. <laughs> I think, I, I think the best thing that I try to share with people, and I like to work with analogies because a lot of times people, if they're in the presence of an interior designer or a design consultant, it's natural to feel like somebody is reaching out for your investment and certain people are open to finding counsel and certain people have a more defensive approach of, I don't really know if I need you. So you need to prove it to me. And what I try to start with is look, if you need to go to the dentist to fix your mouth, you might want to be open to how they're going to fix it and tell them what you need. Uh -huh. The sequence is not critical, but both components are, are fundamental. Um, I would encourage people, and I have had a lot of success through communication with people in person, and sometimes on the phone, that if you want to go at it your own and get minimal counsel, there's a way, to, I, I do that with people, there's a way to do Let's say you spend minimum two to three hours with a consultant to give you a roadmap. It's like go over that hill, go down the stream, and then go across the bridge. And a good consultant will give them key points to look out for and to be seeking. So I think for people, I think the best piece of advice is if you don't want to fire, if you don't want to hire a financial consultant full time. Get some financial directives as to how to save money, how to invest, and how to spend. After that, if you don't want to be getting consistent counsel, you can go it your way. And I think exploring that even on the surface with a few hours with a, with a consultant can give you clarity. Now, look, sometimes I have discovered that people don't need a full-time designer. They just need to get some clarity as to what's what, what things cost, and what to look out for. Um, but I do think it's a very valuable uh, offering that everybody who is interested in building or redesigning owes to themselves with whoever they want to speak to, 
to get a pinch of education to find out how to proceed. Thank you for that. It's so interesting to hear about the vast array of options and choices people are making in the rebuilding process. Most of the people who lose their homes to a disaster have never even considered building a new home from the ground up. It's so important to have a business like Conejo Hardwood with sales staff who are really design consultants to help regular folks navigate the big decisions. Thank you so much, Francisco, for all of your design insights. I also want to thank you. I'm so glad to have you here. I also want to thank our listeners for their interests. Why are you listening? Do you have a disaster story to tell? We all want to learn more from your experiences in rebuilding your home. Please reach out through our website, www.fromdisastertodreamhome.com, where you can see pictures of the homes that we have recently rebuilt and learn more about each of our guests and have uh, get links to their websites and contact information. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us on this episode of From Disaster to Dream Home, the podcast that takes you inside the home building and rebuilding process. Each week, we bring you time-tested practices and the latest trends through conversations with top professionals in the building industry. You can find other episodes of From Disaster to Dream Home at EWNPodcastNetwork.com, as well as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, and most other major podcast streaming services. Need design help? You can contact us or find out more about our guests at From Disaster to Dream Home. Until next time, let us guide and inspire you as you create the home of your dreams. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.